0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot,
2: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is
3: always at your fingertips. How, How many years have you been doing this podcast? This is going to be year 10. Okay. For the last 10 years, This has been the predominant activity in your life. Is that true? That is absolutely true. And it has led not just to one book, but to two books. And it has led to not only um, having this podcast and having investors come in, but even at your sister's wedding, you end up with a paid speaking gig. Yeah. Right. And so this seemingly, hey, kids, let's put on a show, innocuous impulsive act give ra- gave, gave rise to a whole professional career, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Now, we can say that's all happenstance, uh-huh. right? We can sort of look back and go, boy, he was lucky, right? Or we can sit there and say, maybe there was a little desperate voice in you 10, 11, 12 years ago. That said something like this, the life of a vocation that my parents might approve of is not the life for me. Hmm. And I am more creative than that. I have no idea how it's going to express itself, but I need to stand up and have my own voice. And so consciously, not really aware of what you're doing, your unconscious said,
0: Jerry, welcome back to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me back. It's a delight. And I I, I will say that I really enjoyed the last time it was on. So
0: yeah. That that conversation, you know, we talked about uh, you know, conversations that we're afraid to have. And I think that ultimately, you know, when I read through this book, I realized you wrote an entire book about conversations <laughs> that Indeed. we're afraid to have. But before we get into the book, uh, I, I want to start by asking you something I don't believe that I asked you last time. And that is what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping uh the choices that you ended up making with
3: your own life and career? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, and one no one has asked. Um so, mom was a stay at home uh, mom. Um, and partially, I think that w- that was uh, a consequence of having so many kids, um, seven kids, uh, and partially because it was the sort of time period as the 1960s, and partially because uh, she struggled with mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, dad was a print shop foreman and a uh, proofreader. Um, he started working at uh, the printing company uh, that he worked at um, when I was uh, born and growing up uh, when he was in high school. he went to high school uh, a New York City specialized high school high school for the printing trades. Um, he took a break uh, went into the army, came back, began working again for them and then um, in nineteen seventy three he was fired um well the, the the company shut down because it was an old school uh printing company they would the magazine companies would outsource their printing to this company adams Payne printing and they got bypassed by technology and the company failed um after my father working there for thirty over thirty years and then um He, then my mom started to go to work to help pay the bills while my dad's union kept trying to find him different jobs. And so he, he, he took union provided position after union provided position for the next 15 years, maybe 20 years, uh, until he finally passed away. Wow. So I mean, what decisions did you
0: make about how you would live your life based on your parents' life? And what did you learn about human dynamics from being part of such a big family?
3: Uh, two really powerful questions. So I'll take them sort of piece by piece. The first, and, and I've told this story before, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell it again. One of the most consequential aspects of my father's uh, work experience and how it showed up in my life. Um, I would say it was sort of twofold, um, but all triggering around this this uh, event when I was ten and when he lost his job. and um the first is that um very early on it it was so scary to me. you know, my dad came home just before Christmas to announce that he had lost his job, that the company was shutting down. And it was so consequential that it, it scared me and arguably scarred me and, um, looking backwards, it's pretty clear that, uh, every work situation I've ever had, I've, uh, I've, I've had a greater than average amount of control as to whether or not, uh, I was going to be fired. Um, and so uh, it wasn't quite that I always worked for myself. There was times in you know, my late teens, early 20s, where I was working for others. And then throughout my 20s, I worked for a publishing company out on Long Island. But pretty much after, you know, say, 28, 29 years old, I, I effectively worked for myself. There was this one period where I worked for J.P. Morgan. But it was a short period of time, mm-hmm. and the key thing is that um, I was my employment was always under my control. Yeah, um, uh, and not just because I experienced the trauma of him coming home and losing his job, but because I spent the next ten years watching his sense of self worth and his uh, self confidence be so challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was they were. Fairly traditional. And so it produced an enormous amount of shame for him that his wife had to go out and work to help pay the bills. Hmm.
0: Wow. And then what about the dynamic of having so many siblings?
3: Well, aside from the fact that um, I eat very quickly, just <laughs> so to make sure that no one <laughs> eats the food off my plate, yeah. and I still do that today. Uh-huh. Um, it, you know, it's, it, I, I think it was uh, twofold. One is that um, it, I, I can easily get lost in a crowd, um, and I often associate that with a, with a form of introversion that I, that I think I have. But the other was that, um, you know, I, I write about this a lot in the book, about the challenges of, of being my parents' son, but the one thing I would say, and I don't think I convey strong enough in the book, is um, the sense of um, tri- tribalism that I had with my siblings. And even though there are lots of dynamics among the seven of us, um, I always felt that uh, someone had my back. Um, and it might have been one of my sisters. it might have been one of my brothers, but at any moment um we could fight with each other, but uh we we're kind of like a a pack of feral cats where um you you don't you don't mess with us mm-hmm. uh or I'll, or I'll use the language they would normally use, which is you don't fuck with us um and that bond is pretty tight. So, um, and that, I think that that, um, the way it shows up in my life is that, um, um, I, I enjoy, uh, being close knit with, with a small group of people, five, six people. Mm -hmm. And I have several people in my life, several groups that I join and I am tight with, um, and it, and it's very helpful. So... (laughs)
0: I I can relate to the wanting to control your employment because of being fired from damn near every job I've had. And I think (laughs) that was 30 when I concluded, yeah, that's, that's just, that ship has sailed. And yet, you know, in the last 10 years, what I have been faced with is a profound amount of uncertainty knowing that, okay, you know what? I'm making things work. I finally got out of my parents' house. I'm making decent money. I live where I want to live. And then there's this part of me that having just watched my sister get married was how the hell am I ever going to make that happen? Like, you know, what is it going to take? And I, I wonder, you work with a lot of founders, you've invested in a lot of people, you've seen people, you know, kind of achieved outsized success. And, and, you know, right before we hit record, you said that that feeling of uh, I'm terrified just because I've raised money is, is completely common. Uh, mm. So I just, you know, I wonder what your commentary is about all of this.
3: Well, uh, at the risk of coaching you, uh, what the <laughs> hell, i going to coach you. Um, tell me. Tell me what it, what does it feel like watching your, and is this your younger sister? It is my younger sister, yeah. Okay, so, um, and you're not
4: married? No. And it's just the two of you? It is just the two of us. Okay. And
3: I forget, what, what uh, cultural tradition did you grow up with? Uh, 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 okay. So I'm gonna make some assumptions enough. based on that yep. that I could be completely wrong. Okay. Your mother's heart is broken that her firstborn son <laughs> is not yet married. It healed a little bit because my <laughs> <was married. laughs> Right. Okay. I got a break for about two years. <laughs> okay. So as you watch your sister get married, yeah. What's yeah, there you go. What story did you tell yourself about yourself?
0: You know, there, there are two things at, at work here. One was, I think, the when it came time to it, you know, I realized, okay, I'm not going to have a date for this thing. And I thought to myself, you know what, this is a golden opportunity because I know two things. I give really good speeches and I look good in a tux. And so rather than treat it as this moment of, you know, jealousy or, or sort of like, oh, why is not this happen for me? I was like, wait a minute, this isn't even about me. It's about her. And so I literally put up a phone, uh, uh, you know, a slide with a picture of my phone number on the screen and said, you know, for all the aunties who want to know when I'm getting married, you can text profiles, pictures, and all other relevant information to this number. <laughs> and then I gave my speech and I got a paid speaking engagement out of it. I got paid. <laughs> I got in And one of my brother-in-law's friends invited me to come and talk to his students. So, <laughs> you know, it was funny because I dreaded it the whole time, but it actually became The the experience of it itself became an experience of profound joy. It brought my entire family so much closer together. Uh, You know, we're all closer because
3: of it. And, you know. Okay. So I want to say hats off to you. That's wonderful. And let's go back to the question I asked you. Okay. So I think. So what's your sister's first name? Uh, Sarisha. Sarisha. So, hey, Srini. It's me, Sarisha. I'm engaged. Yeah. What happened? You know, it's funny. The day they got engaged was the
0: week that my book actually came out, my second book, and it wasn't doing that well. And it was just like, I I remember my mom even told me, she's like, you look exhausted, like something is wrong. Uh, And I was like, at the same time, I'm like, okay, this is like, this is my sister's day. I need to to, uh, make sure that that's what's important here. The, I'll tell you what it was. Um, The, it was just the thought that it, more than anything it's been the thought that okay you know what i'm like how in the world am i going to finance anything like this right now like i still
3: have a long finance way it. to go together <laughs> oh, finance <laughs> like, it you know that's so that's what you focused on was the well that's what that's what came up for
0: me a lot over the last couple of months was you know you want to have this conversation with my parents i'm like you know what? i'm like it stopped being about sort of meeting somebody and it became okay how do I do that without financial security? And then I realize I'm like, I've signed up for a life of profound uncertainty, you know?
3: Okay, so just hang out and let's pause there for yeah. a moment because you just raised $50,000. Yeah. I'm sorry if I'm, I'm revealing a dollar amount.
4: Um, the subtitle of my book, Leadership in the Art of Growing Up.
3: There's something that happens to us in our 30s, right? Which is, and I'm imagining you're in your 30s. Is uh, that right? I'm actually 41. So, oh, up.
0: God bless. No wonder your mother's heart is been <laughs> broken.
3: Um, <laughs> I'm kidding
0: you. But hey, so, I, I look nowhere near 40. If you see pictures of me and my dad right. on Instagram, the guy
3: literally that's, gets mistaken for my brother every time we go there. That, that's right. So, that's right. Because he looks so young. Yeah. So here, here's, so there's, there's something that happens, which is this sort of drumbeat call mm. that goes kind of like this. When am I going to grow up? My sister's getting married, which means getting on in her life. She and her husband now, they can afford, fill in the blank, the wedding, mm. the house, the family. Whew. You finally you had a second book out. Congratulations, um, but it but it wasn't necessarily giving the sense of security that you had hoped. And I'm quoting you now. I think, and I'm used to living this life of uncertainty.
5: Mm.
3: What was what was striking to me, and this could be all projection on my part. Yeah. I could be wrong, but it's a kind of dance that began that that perhaps has been going on for a while, which is around adulting. Hmm. Does that have any resonance Yeah, you? no,
0: absolutely. I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, I, I, like I'm looking at, I have the notes from your book, you know, right here in front of me. And, and hmm. I think, you know, you say radically inquiring within allows us to step back and see the patterns of our lives, not as random acts of a willful or even vengeful God, but as forces that shape who we really are it's this understanding that will make us not only better leaders, but happier and more resilient people. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, these are, you know, I mean, to be honest, like for a second, I was like, okay, do we really want to have this conversation on air? Um, but so take a breath. Yeah, You brought this to me. Sure. Fair enough. Keep going. Um yeah I mean yes that that is the dance you know at moments I feel wow like this is so much more than I ever thought I would do with my life and so so I think the question that comes from that is this question of can you even mitigate hedonic adaptation
3: Okay so let's um let's go back to the quote read the last line of the quote from my book
0: it's this understanding that will make us not only better leaders but happier more resilient people Okay, let's
3: uh, change the word people Mm. to adults. Okay. And let's look at the conversation that we began Mm -hmm. and say, let's imagine for a moment that there might be an implicit question there, which is, am I an
4: adult? And can I be an adult? Will I ever be an adult? Remember that question, will I ever be
3: able to afford to have this wedding? Yeah. Will I ever be able to have this wedding? Will I ever be able to be married? Will I ever be an adult? hmm Now, what I'm trying to say in that book is that the only way that you can move towards that better, healthier people, i.e. adulthood, mm-hmm fully actualized, fully realized adults, is to look at those patterns Mm -hmm. and to understand what's at play here. You asked me what the implication of my father and mother's work choices were in my life, and you immediately connected (laughs) with the story that I was telling you. So let me turn it around and say, how has it served you to not have gotten married? That is actually a good question.
0: And to be honest, um, I think that in a lot of ways, much of what I've been able to do in terms of building Unmistakable Creative and take the risks I have, um, it wouldn't have been as easy if I had the responsibilities of a family at this point.
3: So let me, again, I'm going to move it along just using a little projection. So what I understand for you is that the creative life is incredibly important. Mm Yeah. Yeah. And what has enabled, what what your life choices have enabled you to do is to give breath and life to the creative side of who you are. Mm. The challenge is, and the cost associated with that, is your mother's broken heart. Mm. Because mom is waiting for grandkids. Mom is waiting for the completion of a cycle. Yeah. Right. And so that this tug between duty, responsibility, and freedom, and creativity, and fullness of your life, the way you have resolved that
4: is this somewhat uncertain life.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And so part of what
3: we want to do when we're in this relationship with these patterns and you call them hedonic patterns I don't even know what that means yeah. but <laughs> when when you talk about the the patterns part of what happens is to really understand those patterns we need to see the patterns but we need to also understand the ways in which those patterns have served us and this is the jujitsu move mm. the way those patterns no longer serve us yeah because i think you're entering that period Mm -hmm. where oh shit this little gig which was something of a hobby unmistakable creative yeah this is now actually a business (laughs) what the fuck when did i grow up
0: yeah yeah it,
5: Does that
3: resonate?
0: No, it did. I mean, in a moment, it made me feel very grown up. Like I noticed all of a sudden my behavior towards the people in my team changed. The way I looked at my finances changed. Hmm. Um, the way I responded to the people who are investors. Like, I mean, I remember I had a, a, a personal experience that was difficult and I was talking to my brother-in-law and, and we we're talking and I was like, dude, that is the least of my concerns right now. I have to go give a speech. So like this is, you know, professionalism as far as I'm concerned, Um But there's something you say, and I I wonder about this with with your Mm. own founders that you work with and like, why is it that people come to you? Like, I know that you've been called the CEO whisperer and you say, you know, tracing forward these remembrances of things past gives us a chance to re-experience and reframe these beliefs. Doing so liberates us from the confounding forces we label as fate, destiny, or even more frequently the other fault person's fault. And so I wonder how that reframing happens you know why is it that that people come to you and what do you see in your own founders that you're noticing in me um, that we're talking about? Because I know that you said that my experience of holy shit, like I've got to multiply this money, is a common feeling.
3: Well, uh, again, let's use you as an example of what we might, what I might encounter, or what uh, coaches generally would encounter yeah. encounter with a founder. Um, there's an impulse, and the impulse gives rise. To an activity. Hey, wouldn't it be great if I did a podcast about the creative life? Why? I'm not really sure. It just sounds like it would be fun. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we start going and all of a sudden there are life choices that are happening, even if they happen as a consequence of no action being taken. Right? So, for example, how how many years have you been doing this podcast? This is going to be year 10. Okay. For the last 10 years, this has been the predominant activity in your life. Is that true? That is absolutely true. And it has led not just to one book, but to two books. Yes. And it has led to not only um, having this podcast and having investors come in, but even at your sister's wedding, you end up with a paid speaking gig. Yeah. Right. And so this seemingly, hey, kids, let's put on a show, innocuous, impulsive act gave, gave, gave rise
4: to a whole professional
3: career. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
4: Now, we can say that's all happenstance.
3: Uh-huh. Right. We can sort of look back and go, boy, he was lucky. Right. Or we can sit there and say, maybe there was a little desperate voice in you 10, 11, 12 years ago that said something like this, the life of a vocation that my parents might approve of is not the life for me. Hmm. And I am more creative than that. I have no idea how it's going to express itself, but I need... To stand up and have my own voice. And so, consciously, not really aware of what you were doing, your unconscious said, here, I'll take the wheel. Yeah. Right? And it drove you to the place where you are right now. Two books,
4: paid speaking gigs, mm-hmm. sponsors, investors. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
3: Am I reflecting anything that doesn't feel
0: true? No, I mean, it, it all is. I just don't think I've ever heard it put that way before
3: and so what i'm seeing and feeling in coming back to you with this is you know to go back to the quote that you had what your life is a series of unconscious choices it is not the result
4: as i say of a vengeful god or even a really loving god
3: it's a function of you allowing that inner voice to make some choices in your life. Hmm. And so I want to take a step back and say, I applaud you. Because even though you're stepping into the uncertainty, by the way, certainty is a falsehood anyway. Ask my father who was certain that he was going to have a job for the rest of his life. Right? Mm -hmm.
4: Even though you're living in this land of not knowing this uncertainty, you're doing good work. You're doing it well, and you're doing it for the right reasons. Hmm. So when people come to you, do you ever discover that they're doing what they're doing for the wrong reasons?
3: And what is that conversation like? Uh, can I reframe your question? Please, yeah. do, they, do they ever discover that they're doing it for reasons that they did not realize they were doing Yeah, it? All the time. All the time. That's what, that's what that, that question that I often ask, which is how have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want, Uh right? It's the movement of, I say, I don't want this, that starts to reveal our true motivations and understanding our true motivations gets us to understand what our true reasons for doing things. Uh, What does right reason mean? To me, it means not necessarily right and wrong, good and bad. It means um, doing it um, in a way that's more conscious, right? If, for example, you launched this podcast and this media company, this media enterprise, because you wanted to prove that your father was wrong and pretended that that wasn't the case, Mm You'd be a little twisted up. Yeah. But if you, with love and laughter, said, Dad, even if it was the internal dad, Dad, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to show you that you can be creative and make a good living, and perhaps someday good enough that
4: you can even afford a wedding, mm. then that's a right reason. Yeah. So, one of the things. That
0: has been really fascinating for me through the sort of journey of 700 interviews was that when it started, it was very much accidental. I literally just plugged a microphone into a laptop so I could complete uh, a lesson in an online course. But over time, you know, given the wide variety of people I've talked to, you know, people who've come here to talk about the you know wrongs in the criminal justice system, ranging from you know people in law enforcement to people who've who've served time, um, to you know things that I've seen from listeners like people kicking addictions. And I'm thinking to myself, how is this happening? Like we tell stories. I'm not a counselor. And and what what I realized was that what this started to mean to me was that I felt that I wanted to give voice to anything that I thought needed to be amplified in society that could move us forward. Like that ultimately is the major thing that I felt that that is probably the thing that I'm most proud of that has come from this. And Mm -hmm. that's why, you know, when we say like the greatest thing you could do to support us is to share this with more people, because It's when we hear crazy things like people say my whole family listens, like when you look at the iTunes reviews, to
4: me, that is incredibly rewarding.
5: Mm.
4: So what I pause
3: because um, I was curious to know if I could hear. So you talked about giving voice Mm -hmm. to people who might not otherwise have their voices heard. Yeah on issues that might not otherwise have been talked about. And, you know, I'm a hammer. I see everything as a nail. Forgive me.
4: Mm-hmm. But um, I wonder about the young man, the young
3: boy, who might have yearned to have his voice heard. Oh, <laughs> that is without a doubt, part of this. Uh, My my
0: ongoing joke is, is you don't become a public speaker if you don't enjoy attention.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Notice a little self-criticism in there. Mm -hmm. I would argue that you could use a little more self-compassion. Okay. Um, I want you to connect back to that kid who wanted to be heard, who then gets in front of his aunties
4: and is finally heard. That boy. Yeah. See, if you can connect to that boy and bring that boy forward
3: and give him a little chair next to your podcasting chair with the headset and the microphone and all the accoutrements that might go into it, you can show that little boy that he's finally being heard. And more important, you can help. And by connecting to that, you can connect to the person on the other side of this conversation who also needs to be heard, which is what you do already. I'm just suggesting being even more connective and empathetic on that. Mm -hmm.
4: Well, I think
0: that makes uh, a really sort of perfect segue to two things that I, I wanted to ask you about. So, you know. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard my last conversation with Jerry, we'll link it up. But I know that you had a suicide attempt, ironically, at, to me, but at what was basically the height of your career, having you know been part of this wildly successful venture venture capital firm. And there are two things you say in the book. Things are always falling apart, always to expect otherwise is to invite suffering. And you have the other thing you say is when we stop the bullshitting, pretending that we're crushing it, that we've got it all figured out, we run the risk of being overwhelmed by the realities of all that we carry, the burdens we've convinced must remain secret to keep us and those we love safe, warm, and happy. And I think that that really struck me. I mean, part of what drew me to your work, uh, I think, to begin with was a particularly dark period in my life. And, you know, I know that this is a really, really big part of what you do. It's part of what I have wanted to really talk to you about is, is this issue of, of mental health in, in entrepreneurship. Uh, this is something that, you know, I, I, so Sam Altman has this really amazing free class called, uh, how to start a startup. It's Y Combinator's entire startup curriculum. You can just Google it and, and watch it for free. And I go through that every six months. But one of the things that I, I never forgotten is the very last lecture in it where he gets up on stage and he basically says, you know, there's one thing that people never tell you. And that is that this whole managing your psychology thing gets worse, uh, which I, I think that most people don't understand that. And, and so, you know, you end up with these situations like founder suicides and, and really just sort of dark outcomes in it. And I, so, so you, know, you know, how do we get to that place? I mean, how do people end up in such a, a dark place and how do you
3: sort of guide them out of it with your work? Um, well, the dark places... Um I, I think if we want to look at some common traits, um, you know, here again, if we look at sort of patterns from our childhood they'll they will show up. The the suicidal feelings that I that you are referencing, which occurred when I was thirty-eight, were a reenactment of suicidal feelings from when I was eighteen, which really were a revelation of a lifetime relationship danced if you will with depression which is why i go back so far in the past in the opening chapter of the book because i wanted to to create the context for that the when we're dealing with the challenges um that you're referring to with founders in particular there are a couple of um, phenomena that, that contribute to the feelings. One is uh, this notion of the inside of ourselves not matching to the outside of ourselves. And so um, one of the consequences of walking around all the time pretending and bullshitting that you're crushing it is a dissonance between how you actually feel and what you're saying that you feel. And so when folks like Sam stand up and start speaking truth or myself or Brad Feld or, you know, others who sort of are are leading by example by talking about the struggle in an open, honest way, what we're really trying to do is make it safe uh, for everyone else to acknowledge that, hey, congratulations, I just raised a bunch of money. Wish me congratulations. And I feel like shit. Mm -hmm. Right? That phenomena um, and being able to talk about that phenomena is really important because there's this corollary problem which exists not just in the entrepreneurial community but really in our society. That, as far as I can tell, no matter how much and how many leaders in our society, celebrities, sports figures, um, business leaders, uh, elders, no matter how many of us speak openly about our struggles, the fact that human beings struggle still seems to be stigmatized. Mm. And I think the stigma exists because we do not teach our children what to do with suffering. I was talking to a group of people today. One woman was dealing with some grief. Her husband is aging. He's 80. And another woman was, quote, unquote, trying to help her by explaining to her that she had nothing to worry about. And finally, I interrupted the process and I just said to the other woman, I said, what, what feeling do you want this first woman to have? She said, oh, well, I don't want her to feel what she's feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I said, why not? She said, Be-, and then she paused, she said, because it makes me uncomfortable. And I think implicit in that is something really important in our society. We teach children not to feel what they are feeling or admit to what they are feeling and so then we don't give them the skills to handle what they are feeling and then we rush headlong into chronological adulthood and in the case of founders and venture back you know entrepreneurs who have a tendency to marry the sense of self-worth with their enterprise and all of a sudden you have a very potent mix of forces that make it very, very difficult to, to, to be healthy in those environments. Because like what is mental health?? right? Leave aside, for example, true psychological um, illness. Yeah. What is generalized mental health? It's the capacity. Right? It's that word equanimity that I write about. It's the capacity to look at the world, experience all of the shit, and not walk away believing that you yourself are a piece of shit.
4: Hmm. That to me is mental well being. Wow. Life is tough, and I'm okay. Yeah. You know, there's this other quote uh, that really stood
0: out to me and I wanted to ask you about it. You say, it's the space between wishing things were different from what they are and bitterly giving up and giving into the fuck my lifeness of the world and its harsh pain of birth, old age, sickness, and death. It's the space we're dissatisfied with life as we strive for, despite knowing that our efforts may fail, will likely fail. We build our companies, our castles in the sky, our mandala sand paintings, knowing that the winds will inevitably shift and will be gone. It's a space where, despite the death of a loon, we can feel the glorious reassurance that all shall be well. I think that that was. That's, good. that's a good piece of writing. <laughs> that's
4: a great piece of writing. I mean, you know, I,
0: I'm always very mindful of what I underline and highlight, you know, when I, when I transfer my notes to, to Notion. And uh, that was one of those that stood out. And I knew I was like, I didn't want to get out of this conversation without asking you about that.
3: Mm. What can I tell you about that? Seems self evident to me. It does in a lot of
0: ways. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I think that there is this sort of, you know, space between that you're talking about where, you know, wishing things were different than they are. And I remember I wrote this piece for our blog's titled I think it was like the eternal gap between who you are and who you want to be, because mm. I think that, you know, you, you grow as a human being. Growth is just a part of your, your natural evolution. And, ad, you know, that, that, that's what I meant by hedonic adaptation is that, that this goalpost that you have in mind keeps moving mm. Uh so I, I guess, you know, like to me, how do you find satisfaction while at the same time knowing that there's still something else you want to accomplish?
3: Well, first, let's talk about uh, recognizing that what you call that gap and what I call the space between are really kind of the same thing. Yeah. And the fact that we're both speaking to that, um, I think uh reveals again the universality of that experience there's a world that we would like to have and there's the world as it is and we are you know parker palmer calls it the tragic gap um there's the person i'd like to be and there's the person that i sometimes or often am right and in buddhism we're taught to let go of attachment to the beliefs, and to the person that I'd like to be, because attachment can lead to self-denigration and self-criticism and challenges to our own sense of self-worthiness, because we are never going to achieve perfection in who we'd like to be. And the world is never going to be perfect. And the world is
4: never going to be what in our heart we'd like it to be but that doesn't mean we give up and so you strive without attaching your
3: sense of self-worth to attainment of the goal so that you can be okay so we strive because there's meaning and purpose in the striving we strive because magic shit happens when we
4: strive but when we fail we remember that we tried and we pick ourselves up and we dust ourselves off and we try again.
3: Hmm. And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. To me, that's much more glorious than perfect
4: attainment of every single wish, dream, and goal. So I, have, cause that, yes. that, 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 that's the power of equanimity. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I have two last questions for you. Mm-hmm. One of the other
0: things that caught my attention in the book, uh, was this line where you said my pursuit of lemon drops and monopoly money had left me wealthy, but empty money in my pocket did little to quiet the lingering shame and guilt. I felt watching my father blow air into an empty wallet when I asked for the funds to apply to college. And I think I asked you a version of this question last time. And I wonder, I mean, you've been up close to people uh, who have accumulated significant amounts of wealth. You've seen founders who have gotten wealthy from their creations. And having seen all of that, having had that experience and that quote,
4: how do you think about money and wealth now? Well, I think we're wired to see wealth as a means towards safety.
3: And when we think of it that way, it can be useful to try to understand what the threat is that we're trying to ward off. And I think that uh, the threat is often humiliation, shame. Sometimes the threat is a physical threat, especially if you've grown up with true poverty. Do um, you know what it's like to be hungry? You know what it's like not to be have good medical care. You know what it's like not to have good shelter. Um, and unfortunately, we live in a society where one must pay for such things, despite the implicit belief that those are in
4: inalienable rights life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um,
3: The challenge is that, uh, the challenge isn't so much around the money, the challenge is around the notion of enough. Mm. And the question is, how much is enough to make you feel existentially safe? And you can be physically safe and still feel existentially unsafe. And when we're working with that condition, no amount of money in the world is going to change it. Hmm. By the way, there are people who don't have a lot of money who feel existentially safe. And the truth of that is a really important truth to hold on to. It's not just this romanticized ideal of, you know, oh, the person who just, you know, fishes for a living and they just take care of themselves in that way. It's the notion of the hard work of creating existential safety, and uh, oftentimes there's a connection to some sort of wisdom tradition. It might be an elder earth-based awareness, or it might be a religious tradition. But it's a but it's but it's an understanding
4: that we are more than the meat bag with which we are walking around. Wow. Uh, well, I have one final question for you,
0: uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews the Unmistakable Kid. And would be curious to see how you'll answer this this time,
4: uh, given that I'm getting to ask you this for a second time. What do you think it is to make somebody or something unmistakable? Um, I think there's a line I use in the book. Which is, and and I'm going to
3: say this, this is an aspiration um, that I hold for myself, and it's a line I I came to understand as I was writing,
4: which is this,
3: I am enough just as I am. And uh, when I encounter people that I think are unmistakable, I think they embody
4: that phrase, I am enough just as I am. Wow. Uh incredible,
0: as I expected it would be. Uh I can't thank you enough for uh taking the time to join us and and sharing your story, your insights, and, and your wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh your work, the new book, and everything else that you're up to?
3: So uh the book website is reboot by reboot by and uh it's uh, reboot.io is the company. And before I sign off, I want to say thank you to you because you allowed me to go to take you to certain places and that required bravery and vulnerability. And, um, it made me feel like, dude, you're my friend. (laughs) And that made me happy. (laughs) Awesome.
0: And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.